All right, we're in First Peter chapter night, uh, tonight, First Peter chapter four. And if you're wondering why I would have picked a random passage like that, uh, it's simply because we're going through First Peter in Sunday school, and we're running out of Sundays in this quarter to finish the book. So I thought, man, this is great. I've got a couple of Wednesdays. We can uh, put some other studies in there and get through the whole thing. So uh, we're in First Peter chapter four, and we're looking at verses one through eleven tonight. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. <clears throat> First Peter 4, starting in verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the less of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this and for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift... Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So tonight, uh, as we take a look at this passage, we're going to be focusing on the, uh, the reality of a transformed life. And I'm sure we have all heard uh, different kinds of testimonies uh, of people whose lives were just radically changed. Um, I uh, believe I shared already here that was really what prepared me and opened me, my heart to the gospel was my own older brother whose life was dramatically changed, transformed uh, by the grace of God. And so when he began to witness to me and others in the family, I was ready to listen because I couldn't deny the reality of what God's grace had accomplished in his life. And uh, that should be true, of course, of every Christian. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so one of the most powerful evidences of the existence of God, one of the most powerful evidences of the truth of the Bible are the lives which have been transformed by the grace of God. Uh, People sometimes, you know, will debate certain theological teachings of the Bible. They can't debate a changed life. And so God indeed is the one who uh, is operating this work of transformation in us, and every one of us needs to be transformed, even if we don't come from a you know, an excessively uh, abominable life in our past, um, we are still very much in need, of course, of God's transforming power. And thankfully, transforming life is God's specialty. And, um, and so we need to see our continual need 
to allow God to work in us. And so that's the challenge before us tonight. We need to allow God to complete this work of transformation that He has begun in us. And we're going to look at two key points here as we consider that truth, as God's seeking to transform us. On one side, as we're going to see, this means abandoning our old lifestyle, turning away from sin. And then secondly, it means pressing on in our new life with Christ. So first of all, abandoning our old lifestyle, turning away from every form of sin. Um, Why is that so important in the transformation that God has begun? Well, first of all, because the Bible tells us, it reminds us here in this passage, that Christ has put an end to sin. And so in verses 1 and 2, he says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. And so basically Peter is starting out by saying that since Christ has redeemed us from the penalty of sin, since he has rescued us from the power of sin, how can we go back still to sin? Not only that, but knowing that Christ had to suffer as he did and die, how could we still indulge any sin in our lives or tolerate any form of sin? Uh, to the contrary, know that it's God, know the, knowing that it's God's will to transform us both on the inside and on the outside, we should spend the rest of our life allowing God to complete this amazing transformation that he has begun in us. I remember one time uh, meeting a, a Christian man. He'd been saved uh, not too long, maybe a couple years, but uh, very zealous for the Lord. And I remember talking to him and asking his testimony, and he, he just wrapped it up briefly. He said, well, you know, this is my main testimony. He says, just as much as I lived for Satan in the past, before God saved me, he said, I want to have the same zeal now for living for God now that I'm one of his children. And uh, that's, really the, the, that's really the mindset that all of us should have as we seek to allow God to transform us more and more in the image of Christ. So Christ has put an end to sin. And then point B, because sin was the driving force of who we were, but not of who we are now in Christ. And so while sin dominated our life, Before we knew Christ, the Bible says now that um, sin shall no longer have power over you through Christ. And what Peter does here in verse number 3, he lists out a number of uh, sins that we see in the world. And uh, just to go through them briefly, you know, this just kind of typifies where society society is. Um, He talks about lasciviousness, which is uh, unrestrained immorality. That is uh, sin in your face, which, of course... That's what we see all around us anymore. Lust, the indulgence of unlawful desires, excess of wine, referring to the overflowing of wine, drunkenness, uh, revelries, just kind of obnoxious, boisterous merrymaking, banquetings, which was more of a reference to drinking parties than to eating, uh, and abominable idolatries, which were the abominable, the obscene practices that went along with their uh, idol feasts. And so... Peter goes on to say, he says, knowing that this is how people live who don't know God, how could a Christian have any part in those practices? Now, of course, his list here is just uh, um, representative, right? This is not a complete list of, of sins that uh, exemplify the world. But the truth that he's saying is the same. He says, when you look at the world and see the types of things that they indulge in, the types of things that they uh, allow in their lives... 
He says, how in the world could a Christian um, indulge in any of the same things? A Christian will realize that whatever time he spent doing those types of things in the past is already too much and will seek to distance himself as much as possible from those things. Now, that is why Christians are sometimes known for what they don't do. And I'm going to say rightfully so. Uh, It seems like today sometimes as Christians, we tend to want to avoid that stigma of, you know, as a Christian, I don't do this and I don't do that. Um, And obviously that is not a complete expression of the Christian faith, right? Only the things that we don't do. But Christians should be known for the things they don't do. Okay? And I find that today more and more Christians are thinking we actually need to be a little bit more like the world so they don't think we're too strange, that we're too... um, uh, foreign from what they are used to, what they're accompanied to, accustomed to, I'm sorry. And, uh, but the Bible says this is exactly where Christians should stand out. Look what he says in verse number four. He says, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking evil of you. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really thankful for the vice president that we have right now, Mike Pence, but, you know, the fact that he would actually, you know, take a public position about uh, not being found with another woman uh, in a car or some private setting like that other than his wife. And, of course, he's been mocked for that. He's been vilified for that. And I say, praise the Lord for that. I mean, that's exactly the type of testimony that Christians should be seeking. And, um, again, it's not the complete story. We're going to see the other part, the, other, the flip side of our testimony in a minute. But that side of our testimony needs to be present. It needs to be a reality. Things that we don't engage in because we are seeking to honor our Lord and we know that the things that the world offers are an abomination to Him. And so this also provides a message of hope to all of us because just as Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, and such were some of you, talking about the things that people you know, get involved in in the world. He said, such were some of you, but you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What's so exciting is that just as back then in the first century, there were people who were involved in those things and who God saved and transformed their lives and brought them out of it. So today still, there are people who are in those backgrounds who have been saved and whose lives have been wonderfully transformed. And that should encourage us because all of us know people who sometimes we just feel like that person is just too far gone. I mean, honestly, that person is just so far out there. They are so deep into sin. You know, there's just, we, and we tend to be kind of mentally write them off. And to be honest with you, when we, some of the places we go, you know, to minister, my wife was asking prayer for the, uh, the rehab center. You know, you go into the rehab center where folks, the folks that are there, they're, they're drug addicts. They're the alcoholics. Um, go into the prison, you know, and people whose lives have just been completely, you know, completely messed up. And um, uh, just this morning, I was speaking of the rescue mission, Lebanon Rescue Mission. And in all these places, you meet these people whose lives are a disaster. And honestly, you're, you're, you're inclined to think, what's the point here? I mean, and some of them have professed faith in the past. Some of them um, used to attend churches in the past, and now they're completely falling back into sin. And it's so easy one to write them off. And the whole point of this text is to say, no, 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 no. God is able to transform even those who, are, who seem the furthest removed from God. 
And so it should encourage us as we seek to share uh, the wonderful, transforming message of Christ with those around us. So we need to put it, uh, turn it away from, from sin in every form because Christ has put an end to sin, because that was what we were, not what we are, and because all will give account one day for sin. Peter says in verse number 5, who shall give account of him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. So um, Peter reminds us here that uh, all will stand before God, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, will all stand before him to give account one day, one form or another. And um, he then goes on and makes a kind of an interesting comment in verse number 6. He says, For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. A little bit of a difficult verse. Um, personally, from you know, things I read and, and studying out the text, it seems to me that this is perhaps the best way to understand it. Peter, as he wrote this epistle, was addressing Christians who were suffering persecution, and some of whom had already faced death as a result of their stand for Jesus Christ, as a result of their faith. And so it was natural in that connection to refer to those who had died in the faith and to show for the encouragement of those who were still alive, for believers who were still alive, that though their brethren had been judged and put to death in the flesh by men, by the persecutors, yet they were still very much alive in their spirit before God. So in other words, to say people judged them severely and put them to death for their faith, but God gave them life and saved their soul, which should then serve as an encouragement to all of us as believers, no matter what we might face as opposition or as rejection or as persecution even. And then Peter reminds us, talking again about this idea of judgment that we'll give account one day, he says in verse number uh, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. And so it reminds us the nearness of Christ's return, the nearness of the moment when we will stand before God. And Peter sensed that, okay? So 2,000 years ago, he already sensed the nearness of, of the end of all things and, and Christ's possible return. Um, and in fact, it, it, in a sense, it was true for him because a short time after he wrote this epistle, he was put to death. Um, but how much more true for us where there are so many indications uh, which would lead us to understand that Christ's return cannot be that far away. Um, and just looking at a number of even, you know, fairly recent facts, um, the fact that Israel is back in their land, the fact that since 1967, Israel's taken possession of the Temple Mount, um, which is important because one day they're going to rebuild the temple according to prophecy. Um, you know, Jesus had talked about the increase of false prophets in the last days, even those who claim to be Christ. And there's no lack of that in our world today. Um, or again, this is often one I think of. Jesus predicted that in the last days, the gospel would be preached in every nation. And then he adds, and then the end will come. Well, friends, we are, we are full in that. There are too many generations before us that could have said that. Today, we can say that in every nation, the gospel is being preached. And Jesus says, once that happens, that we're right there. He's knocking on the door. And uh, again, even in some of the most unlikely places in the world, um, 
Just re- I received just recently a, a testimony by a missionary in Senegal working among a tribe called the Bajaranki tribe. I mean, have you ever heard of them? <laughs> Not too many, right? And uh, there's all these tribes, you know. And yes, there's missionaries working among the Bajaranki tribe. And he was sharing about how some folks have gotten saved in that tribe and how they've written some of their own songs now, their own Christian songs. And he was sharing about how excited they are to have written their own songs and to sing songs in their own language and everything. And this reminded me again what the Bible says that all these nations where the gospel's been preached will all be around the throne one day, you know, singing praises to God. But wouldn't that be cool if every, every nation sang in their own tongue, you know, around the throne and then we got a translator in the year, you know, tell us what they're saying. And, uh, but again, just an evidence that um, the Lord's return cannot be far off. And so Peter says, okay, recognizing the time that we're in, we need to be all the more vigilant. Now let's go on to point number two. So not only should we be turning away from every form of sin, but he says in number two, then we should be pressing on in our new life with Christ. So he transitions in verse number seven by talking about reminding us that the end of all things is near. In verse number seven, he goes on and says, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So Peter says in light of these truths and knowing that the Lord's return is near, he says our life in Christ should be characterized by sobriety and prayerfulness. Now, when he says, be ye sober, that word sober literally means to abstain from alcoholic beverages. And I know that this is still a point of discussion in some Christian circles. I can't for the life of me figure out why, honestly. But the Bible um, encourages Christians strongly to abstain from alcoholic beverages. Now, the word sober goes beyond that. It's not just talking about that as well. It's talking about being clear-minded, sober-minded, being of sound judgment, but it's based on the, the root understanding of the word, which is to abstain from alcohol. But the idea here is that we should not allow any substance or any emotional passion to impair our judgment and our ability to clearly discern what God's will for us is. So when he says that we need to be sober and to watch into prayer, he's saying, okay, we need to make sure that we are clear-minded at all times, not influenced by any kind of um, outside substance or influence that would cause us to not clearly discern what God's will for us is. And then he calls us to a life of um, of prayer, self-control in prayer. He says that we should watch unto prayer. I like what John Wesley said one time. He said, we're to watch that we might pray, and we're to pray that we might watch. And so it seems like Peter here is maybe even referring to our Lord's own words when they were together in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter had invited, uh, the Lord had invited Peter and others to watch and pray with him in the Garden. And Peter, of course, came up short at that point. And, um, and now as Peter remembers his own weakness in that vital, that, that critical moment of our Lord's walk on this earth, he now writes these words to challenge us, recognizing our own inherent weakness and our utter inability to serve God in our own strength. He says we need to understand our vital need of prayer, our daily need of prayer, our moment-by-moment need of prayer for God's strength, for God's guidance. So he says our new life in Christ should be characterized by sobriety and prayerfulness and should be characterized as well by love and service for others. He goes on in verse number 9 
uh, verse number 8, I'm sorry to say, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. He emphasizes here the importance of showing Christian love. And unless you, you know, start to tune out now and say, well, wait a minute, you know, we all know that one. We've heard that how many times. He adds three descriptive phrases here to really drive the point home. Because I'm sure his readers had already heard that point as well, okay? Starting with Jesus' own commandments, um, they heard the fact that they were supposed to love one another. So he goes on, he adds a little bit more to this, and he says, above all things, we're supposed to love one another. Above all things. Mm, that kind of puts it on the top, doesn't it? Um, indeed, when somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What was his answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It was all about love, right? The first and second commandments were all about love. In fact, did you know that in the New Testament, the Christian is commanded to love at least 55 times? Okay, at least 55 direct commands of Scripture for us to love. Kind of helps us to see how important it is to God and how quickly we can get away from it, right? You would think one or two mentions would have been enough for us to get into our heads, right? No, he repeats it 55 times because apparently we have a little difficulty with, you know, hanging on to that commandment and putting it into practice. Another four times, the Bible says that we're to grow in love. So that's a little bit of what Peter's talking about when he says, listen, above all things, friends, not that all these other things aren't important, but he says it, but at the top of the list has to be love. Then he goes on to describe it a different way. He says, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. Right? So it's not enough to say above all things. He now throws in there the word fervent, which means intense or ardent love. That is, if we truly love others, we will go to great lengths to show it. When um, we were serving in France, a member of our church had uh, made some very bad choices. He found himself in prison in a city about 30 miles outside of our city. And um, the church family responded, I believe, in a very God-honoring way. Two men from our church chose to take one afternoon every week to go to visit him. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like much, except for the fact that neither of these two men, these two other Christians from our church, neither of them had a car. So they had to take a one-hour bus trip to the city where this man was in prison. The problem was the prison wasn't in the city. It was outside the city. So after they took the one-hour bus trip to get to the city, then they had to walk by foot for two miles to get to the prison to see this man. They did that one day every week to go encourage him. Meanwhile, his wife, the, the man who was in prison, his wife was at home with the kids. She didn't have a car, and so she couldn't go see her husband. And so some of the ladies from the church, while some ladies would go over and watch her kids, one of the other ladies would take her in their car and drive her 30 miles to this other city so she could go see her husband in prison. Why did they do that? Because the Bible says that we're to love fervently one another. Above all things, it says. And so they were putting to action what the Bible says. He goes on, Peter, then, to give a third description of love. He says, now we to put it above all things and make it fervent. He says, then, because charity, love, shall cover the multitude of sins. And so instead of pointing out the faults of others, out of love we're to overlook them. 
And speaking of love, there was a Christian poet that wrote it this way. He said, love is gentle, delicate, and kind. To faults, it's compassionate or blind. The Bible says that it's the glory of a man to pass over a transgression. And so a loving disposition will lead us to pass by the faults of others. It will lead us to forgive those who have even personally offended us. And, you know, one of the saddest things that happens in a church is when uh, there's a rife between Christians because one is not willing to overlook a fault, because one is not willing to forgive. What may be a real offense, it's not, it's not minimizing the offense here. It's not saying there wasn't a fault that happened. It's saying the mature, loving Christian will be willing to overlook that fault. He's not going to allow that personal offense even to become a, a cause of division in the church or a cause of division between two brothers even. Love covers a multitude, a multitude, a multitude. When, Peter, when Jesus was asked, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? <laughs> what was his answer, right? <clears throat> Seventy times seven, if you can do that math. <clears throat> multitude, he says. So, while one side of us is supposed to reject every form of sin, the other side of us has a lot of work to do, right? <laughs> Putting love into practice, learning to love above all things, learning to love fervently, learning to love in a way that even covers the sins of others. Peter goes on then with actual, another practical application, application of love. He uses the word hospitality in verse number 9. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. It's interesting because the word hospitality literally means love of strangers. That's what the word means. So as he's still thinking or talking about love here, he goes on to say, you know, that love should even extend to strangers. So hospitality is exercised especially toward people that we don't know. A lot of times we think we're hospitable if we have our closest friends over to our house for a meal. That's very nice. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but that's really not hospitality. By definition, hospitality is doing that for people you don't know or maybe you don't know well. And so there's all kinds of opportunities, um, especially in a church this size. Man, there's no, no lack of people we don't know, right? <laughs> especially on a Sunday morning. You, know, you look around, there's probably you know, 20, 30, 50 people we could all say, I don't know who that person is. And, uh, well, there's an opportunity to show hospitality, right? Invite them over or invite them out for a meal. Get to know them better, whether it's a believer or whether it's an a, a unbelieving guest that comes. And then Peter finishes his text by talking about the focus, the positive focus in our Christian walk by saying in verse number 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. So, he finishes here by talking about Christian service. So, not only should Christians be focusing on love, they should also be focusing on serving one another. And specifically, by using the spiritual gifts that we've been given. Now, in case anybody would be inclined to say, well, all right, I'm not, this isn't talking about me because I don't have any spiritual gifts. Huh? Um, the Bible makes it really clear. In verse number 10, he says, as every man has received a gift. <laughs> so, nobody's excluded here, right? Nobody can say, I don't have one. God says you do. All right? Maybe you don't know what your gift is, but you've got at least one of them, maybe even several. 
And he says those gifts that were given were given to serve others. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. That's the purpose of gifts. All through the Bible, by the way, it's always the purpose of gifts. Gifts were never given to build up oneself uh, or to exalt oneself. Um, They were always meant to be a blessing to other people, to serve others. Now, in this passage, Peter only refers to two different types of gifts. He refers to the speaking or teaching ministries, those who speak the oracles of God, he says, or the service-oriented ministries, which he just refers to as, if any man minister to others. Of course, we know that if we go to other texts in the Bible, we can have a more detailed list of some of those gifts. Romans chapter 12, for example, which speaks of exhortation, giving, uh, leading, showing mercy. 1 Corinthians 12 even has uh, one gift in there called the gift of helps. And it's really unfortunate that so often when the, the topic of spiritual gifts is brought up, uh, much of the focus is given on the more visible gifts. And so in our circles, you know, might be, we might focus a little bit more on the, on the gifts of, of uh, you know, of preaching, of evangelism, etc. Um, in some circles, you know, the, the emphasis is on speaking in tongues and on healings and so forth. It's very rare that you ever hear much preaching on, this, on the gift of helps, right? In fact, you, you meet very few people that even claim to have that gift. <laughs> and, uh, but the Bible says all the gifts are necessary and all the gifts are given that we might minister more effectively one to another. Now, uh, if you'd like to know more about spiritual gifts, um, like I said, this, uh, uh, in Sunday school, we're doing a, a class on 1 Peter, and this Sunday we're going to be looking in more depth at the spiritual gifts. So if you like, it's an invitation to come join us uh, in our Sunday school class this Sunday. Okay, the commercial's over. But uh, <clears throat> that's what our new life in Christ should look like. A life of sobriety, a life of carefulness, okay, watching, being careful in the choices we make, a life of love between brethren, a life of service for others. Now, obviously, only God can transform us to make us anything even close to that, right? (laughs) Um, But again, thankfully, that's what His will for us is. That's exactly what he desires to accomplish in us as we allow him to accomplish his work. As we spend time looking at his word, as we spend time with other believers, as we spend time uh, receiving instruction in church, etc. But the key to all of that is not just hearing and reading, but then having that tender, that sensitive heart, that willing heart that says to God, God, I, I need to grow here. I've been, a, I've been a believer only for 40 years now. I've got so much growth ahead of me still. I don't say that tongue-in-cheek, all right? That's the truth. Come to God and say, Lord, you know, I, I, just, I just need for you to continue to mold me. There are so many rough spots in my life. So, Lord, speak to me through your word this day. Lord, as I come into church, you know, th- this is just a great prayer. As you come into church, Lord, don't allow me to come into church and leave the same, Right? So come into church, you know, make it a prayer. God, show me something that I need to, to address, something I need to yield, something I need to improve in. And as we do that, the Lord will mold us into those trophies of grace that he desires to make of every one of us. And so tonight, if the Lord maybe is prompting you about some particular area in your life, maybe some fault that you need to overlook, 
maybe some act of service that, uh, that you should be accomplishing for someone else. Maybe even just the, the commitment to get more involved in church, to be serving in some particular ministry. If there's some area where the Lord is speaking to your heart, I'd really encourage you during this prayer time to truly address the Lord, ask His, His mercy, His help, to be able to affect that change in your life even tonight. All right, thank you. We're going to finish here and, um, and go to our time of prayer. Thank you so much.